Father, we thank you for a hope we have in the future, but we also thank you that in the present we have a Savior that not only influences our future, but influences us deeply in the present. We have your Spirit living within us, working in us, as we strive to live in dependency upon you. We want to be a people who are hearing and obeying your word. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. I have a question, and the question is, which would you choose? You get one or the other, not both. You can know the future, or you can know and experience daily the one who knows the future. Would you choose to know the future or to experience the one who knows the future even though you don't know the future? Which would you, or which are you living in daily life? Attempting to plan and control your future or knowing and experiencing God in Christ moment by moment? Mark continues to unveil Christ in Mark chapter 13. The Gospels are ultimately about Christ. And Mark talks about Christ and his uniqueness. Talks about Christ being the Son of God. Talks about the fact that Christ says he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and that is future from the time in which Jesus lived at that time. Christ was sensitive to God's Spirit, and he is and currently is victorious over Satan. And then as you read through Mark's gospel, we find expressed in words and actions who Christ is. He is the Son of God. He is victorious over the enemy. He proclaimed the good news. He taught with authority. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed various diseases, cast out demons. He prayed. And we could list dozens of items that Christ did demonstrating he is the Son of God. He is unique. In the passage we want to discuss or begin to discuss this morning in Mark 13, Jesus is ministering in the temple. And in that context, in chapter 11 and verse 27... Jesus went into the temple. In 28 of chapter 11 through chapter 12 and verse 44, he is in the temple, he is teaching in the temple, he is being questioned in the temple and so on. And then in chapter 13, he is leaving the temple and he teaches some concerning the future. And remember that it is important that Jesus rejected the temple and its worship. In chapter 11, 12 through 19, he rejected the temple and its worship. Let's read together Mark chapter 13. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another 
Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be in your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or Look, there he is. Do not believe. For false Christ and false prophets will will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge each with his assigned task. 
and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. As we think about this passage of Scripture, keep in mind that what Jesus is sharing with the twelve must be seen in the context of the entire gospel of Mark. Don't read chapter 13. See it in the context of the entire chapter of Mark. Jesus Christ is being revealed in his being, his character, his identity. How does this chapter relate to Christ in his being, his character, his identity? And the interpretation of this passage must be seen in light of Christ. Also, seek to read and hear Mark 13 as the disciples heard it. And the believers in Rome would have heard it. Remember, the believers in Rome are going through persecution. And Mark's gospel was to encourage them. How did the Roman believers hear it and understand? We're tempted in our day and age to read something that we believe is future and immediately try to figure out the future. What did the twelve hear as it was spoken to them? What did the Roman believers hear as they read it while they're going through persecution? That is important. Mark 13 is not a calendar of when future events take place. The purpose of Mark 13 is not so that we know today what is to come in the future. It has to do with Christ. Now, he gives some things that are going to take place in the future, but that's not the primary purpose. We're dealing with Christ, who he is and his identity, his character and his being. And would encourage you to please lay aside the strong desire to know the future. Instead, seek to know the one who knows and controls the future. There is a marked difference between knowing the future and knowing the one who knows the future. We have a tendency to want to know the future. When I think Scripture emphasizes, know the one who knows the future. And would illustrate that with having been in Peru with Dan and Judy Smith. Dan and Judy Smith ministered in the Amazon River Basin for quite a few years. And they had a houseboat. And they would take that houseboat and go up one tributary and then go up to another. And while Ruth Ann and I and our two older children were there, we went on the houseboat with them. We didn't know a lot about where we were going, but we knew Dan and Judy. And as long as we knew Dan and Judy, take us where you want. We know you. You'll get us back. But what, a ben- what benefit would have it been if we went out without Dan and Judy? And I think sometimes we are tempted to want to know everything about the future 
and miss the one who knows the future. Mark is about Christ, the one who knows the future. He's giving some of the future in Mark chapter 13. Here are some guiding principles as you think about Mark chapter 13. This chapter is placed at the conclusion of the temple material. He's taught in the temple. He's rejected the temple worship. And this comes at the end. And he talks about in this chapter the fact that the temple is going to be destroyed. Also, there's a strong exhortation for readers to watch. Look at verse 5 of chapter 13. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. In verse 9, you must be in your guard. In verse 23, so then be in your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. In verse 33, be in your guard, be alert. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Strong exhortation to watch. Be in your guard. This chapter builds upon what has been presented to this point in terms of Mark sharing the identity and character and being of Jesus. He is God. He's the Son of God. He's able to heal and so on. But he also knows something about the future. Continuing to reveal Christ and who he is. The chapter is constructed according to a twofold scheme of tension and paradox, alternating between the immediate future and the end. In verses 1 through 13, I think we're talking about the end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Verses 11 through 27, we're dealing with the tribulation and the parousia, the second return of Christ. Then in verses 28 through 31, we come again back to the end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And then in 20, or 32 through 37, we're dealing with the return of Christ and being watchful. All that Christ is speaking would be future to the time of the twelve. As we read this chapter and discuss it, see the admonitions against attempting to construct timetables and decipher signs of Christ's return. See the admonitions against Attempting to construct timetables and decipher signs of Christ's return. In the verses we looked at just a few moments ago, there's an admonishment to be alert and to be watchful. It doesn't say figure out the future. Be alert. Be watchful. Jesus reminds them, the Roman believers, and I think us today, that they do not know the time of the end. Look at verse 33, Mark 13, 33. Be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. 
Verse 35, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. Strong admonition. You don't know the end and the time of it. And then they're warned not to be led astray by even the most obvious signs. Look at verse 5. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. Why? Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. So he's saying people will come claiming I'm the Christ. Woo. They're not. Don't try to fit the future into a box. Look at verse 7, when you hear wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. Such, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Ah, oh, all kinds of wars going on today. The end must be close. When are we going to figure it out? Jesus says, back up. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Look at verse 21. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is a Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. Ah, the future's coming, the end's coming, it's coming very quickly. When Jesus says, you know, people are going to come along and claim to be the Christ. They'll even do signs and miracles. He says, be on your guard. I've told you everything beforehand. The end is not yet, he says. So my encouragement is, heed the admonitions to not try to build a timetable concerning the future and when things are going to happen and what is going to happen. So we look at the Middle East today. We see what has happened this summer with Israel and Hamas. We can look at what's happening in Iran and Baghdad. Baghdad is, I guess, might be taken over, you know. We see what's happening in Syria. We hear about Iran. We say, ah, the end has to be close. And the thrust of Mark 13 seems to be back up, stop worrying and trying to predict the future, and watch and be alert. Don't go beyond what Christ has said. He does tell us some concerning the future. The text of Scripture does not commend anyone for attempting to be an eschatological code cracker. That is folly. For even the Son of Man is ignorant of the end, according to verse 32. The premium of discipleship is placed not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present, particularly in the midst of trials, adversity, and suffering. Be faithful in the present is where Jesus seems to be coming from. Watch, be alert. 
The end isn't yet. For many years in the past, there has been a great emphasis on prophecy and future events. Do we have an equally great emphasis on faithfulness and being alert in the present? And that seems to be the thrust of the passage. You go to verse 1, as he was leaving the temple. The temple is central in Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 12 along with Mark chapter 13. The temple of that day was very great. It was in the process of being built. We know that Jesus had responded to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the scribes in the temple. He administered and watched people giving money in the women's court. When you think about the temple, just want you to grasp some things that were true of the temple. In Jesus' day, the temple had already been under construction for 46 years and was still unfinished. At no place would Herod, was Herod the Great's obsession with grandeur and permanence more apparent than the temple in Jerusalem. Herod enlarged Solomon's temple to an expanse that measured 325 meters wide, 500 meters long, with a circumference of nearly a mile. The immense 35-acre enclosure could accompany 12 football fields. The southeast corner of the retaining wall hung some 15 stories above the ground that sloped down to the Kindred Valley. The blocks of the stone were used in construction were enormous. Josephus reports that some were 40 cubits, approximately 60 feet in length. No block that size has been found in the existing foundation. But stones north of Wilson's Arch measured 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and weighed over a million pounds. The magnificence of the temple and the stones used to construct it exceed in size any other temple in the ancient world. And that was merely the retaining wall. Above the expanse perched the gleaming royal portico, a striking spectacle to quote Josephus. The portico was 45 feet wide, consisted of three aisles supported by four, column, four rows of columns. The columns were crowned with Corinthian capitals and rose to a height of 45 feet. The thickness of each column was such that it would take three men with outstretched arms to go around the column. In the center of the expanse stood the sanctuary, which, as ancient writers noted, was shaped like a lion, broader in the front, 50 meters, and narrow in the back, 30 meters. It rose to a height of 50 meters and was a collage of gold and silver, crimson and purple, radiating the rising sun like a snow-clad mountain. 
The figures Josephus gives for the blocks of stones in the sanctuary exceeded in size those of the foundation. A vast and stupendous complex it was. No wonder the twelve said, Look, teacher, what magnificent stones. So they're leaving the temple and the twelve. Just make the comment. Look, teacher, what magnificent stones. Or what massive stones, I'm sorry, what magnificent buildings. Then the text goes on in verse 2. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. They're leaving the temple. They see the temple and they comment on it. Temple, 46 years and being built and still not complete. Foundational stones that are way over a million pounds. And even greater size stones within the temple are used in the temple itself. Josephus wrote, and I quote, the exterior of the building, and speaking of the temple, wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid was gold, with gold was of purest white. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. End of quote. What is Jesus' response? A question, do you see all these great buildings? And then a statement, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Jesus buys up the opportunity to teach. They're impressed with the building. Jesus says, great building, but not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now we need to understand when verse 3 says, and as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately that some time has passed between verse 2 and verse 3. What has happened is that they have left the temple, and they have gone to the Mount of Olives. So they were in the temple, and where did they end up? On the Mount of Olives. And it's while being on the Mount of Olives that Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked some questions. We can't prove this from the text, and I'm not out to prove it from the text, but it almost seems like while they're walking along from the temple 
to the Mount of Olives that there's some questions going through their minds. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. No, how's this going to happen? Take a stone 60 feet long. By 15, by 11. Think about moving that. So Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and they pose some questions. The Mount of Olives rises 300 feet above Jerusalem and is separated from it by the Kindron Valley. From this vantage point, Jesus and the disciples had a commanding view of the eastern expanse of the temple and on top of it, the glimmering front of the sanctuary. According to the Mishnah, someone standing on top of the Mount of Olives could look directly into the entrance of the sanctuary. The summit of the Mount of Olives had earlier been the place from which Jesus began his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The description opposite the temple is, in this instance, highly symbolic. Just as Jesus had immediately before pronounced judgment on the scribes while sitting opposite the temple treasury, now he delivers his final judgment on the temple opposite the temple. He is sitting in a position of authoritative teacher. Significant when you consider Zechariah chapter 14, 1 through 8 is a place from which God declares the capture sacking and devastation of Jerusalem. Jesus is assuming the place of God as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives and pronouncing judgment (coughs) on the temple. Judgment on the temple. Jesus responds and gives his response. In light of the overall thrust of Mark's gospel as revealing the Son of Man, as concerning, or as a Son of God, he can speak with confidence concerning the future. His sharing shows us he is who Mark claims he is. the Son of God. His answering the question being raised, questions being raised by Peter, James, John, and Andrew in verse 4 shows that he is the Son of God. He's answering questions that are legitimate. And there are repeated exhortations to watch, to be alert. And I emphasize that. Speaking of the twelve, or speaking to the twelve, watch, be alert. The Roman church, hearing this, be alert. Watch. Keep in mind the Roman church was going through persecution. And I think even today, as you look at history, we need to be willing to say, let's stop. Be alert. Watch. 
There have been many Christ, false Christ, down through the ages. And as you think about this prophecy, as we will find in weeks to come, that you don't have to go very long after Jesus spoke to find false Christ on the scene. So I'll go back to some questions I had earlier. Which would you choose, to know the future or to know and experience the one who knows the future? If you know all you want to about the future and don't know the one who knows the future, you're in trouble. But if you know the one who knows the future, whether you know anything about the future or not is not really that important because you can walk with the one who knows the future. Which are you living in daily life, attempting to plan and control your future or knowing and experiencing God and Christ moment by moment? I think some critical questions as we think about Mark's gospel. Jesus seems to be communicating very, very strongly. There's some pretty dramatic things coming in the future. He talks about the abomination of desolation. He talks about some very great persecution. Pray that it not be in winter, and it's going to really be hard for pregnant women, and so on. But yet he says, watch. Be alert. If I may, know Christ, he is saying. Know me. I'm in control. Christ reveals enough to know, to let us know that he and God are sovereign. They're in sovereign control of the future. Therefore, seek God. Seek Christ. And what is revealed about the future, rejoice in that. But what isn't revealed, don't worry about it and fret about it. Questions or comments as we wrap up our discussion in light of our study of Mark 13? Any questions you have? Jason. In the present day. I'll give a brief comment and then I'll comment more, you know, as we go through the passage. When he says in verse 5, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he. I think we need to be on the alert and watching in the sense of people are on the scene and have come on the scene in the past, you know, claiming to be the Christ. You know, who do we follow? Make sure we're dealing with the true Christ. I think we also need to watch. When uh, he says in verse 26, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds with a great power and glory. We can have all kinds of people say, here's what's coming in the future. 
here's some of the events that are taking place, and part of watching is, no, we're looking for Christ when He comes in glory. That's going to be obvious. No, anything else, beware. I think also watching, just for the whole issue of false teachers, I think being alert in the context is tying in with being yielded to Christ for the twelve, for the Roman church, but also for us today. That's a brief explanation. I'll give more comment in the future. Any other questions? I want to encourage you, what God has revealed about the future, which he has revealed quite a bit in Mark 13, along with the book of Revelation, but don't make your passion the future. Let your passion be Christ. There's a big, big difference. We should not be known for knowing a lot about the future or being able to have the future figured out or being known for our great teaching on the future. We should be known much more for knowing Christ. That's the thrust of Mark's gospel. Nothing wrong in knowing the future in light of what Scripture reveals. But don't make it too great. Know Christ and let Him work in you. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You have revealed some about the future. And as we seek to understand Mark 13 in its context, it kind of blows us away that Christ is able to say, much about what is coming. But yet the exhortation is very strong to the 12 and to the Roman church, and I think to us today, to be alert, to be watchful, and focus on persevering in the time period in which we live for your glory. So may we rejoice in what we know about the future, but yet seek to know Christ. For it's in his name I pray, amen.